Greetings, listeners. Welcome to Reckless Attack Behind the Screen, Episode 1. This is our semi-regular behind-the-scenes look at our fifth edition Dungeons & Dragons actual play podcast. This is going to be the space where we give some insight into things like lore and world-building, character details, interviews, and more. We hope this becomes a fairly regular thing, and we hope to hear from listeners like you about what kind of content you'd like to see here. For today, we're hoping just to do some introductions. We will introduce D&D and tabletop RPGs, we'll introduce the players, we'll introduce the characters, and we'll introduce the world that we'll be playing in. We've worked very hard to keep it all engaging and fun, and we hope that you'll find it all enjoyable and enlightening. It's all time-stamped and is also all very much background info that will be covered in the actual sessions as they come up. So you'll only miss a little bit of flavor and fun if you skip this one, not plot. Please visit us on social media to let us know how you liked it. Check our website and be sure to rate and subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. Some of you may be wondering, what exactly is a tabletop role-playing game? Well, let me go ahead and explain this for you, but know that it is kind of different things to different people. So it might not be the exact definition that you're used to. So starting off from just sort of a a base definition, I suppose, I have the Wikipedia (laughs) article. Can we chime in? (laughs) Webster's Webster's says. Exactly. What is a tabletop role-playing game? It is a form of role-playing game in which the participants describe their character's actions through speech. Participants determine the actions of their characters based on their characterization, and the actions succeed or fail according to a set formal system of rules and guidelines, which is really just a very long-winded way of saying uh, we're playing a game where people talk about things and thing- cool things happen. So just kind of taking that back a little bit, what is a tabletop role-playing game in more casual? <laughs> uh, what am I saying? In more casual terms. In more casual terms, yes. I feel, I feel like I'm yeah, too stiff I, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I don't know. This is gonna this is not gonna work out the way we wanted it to. I think. Just have more of a conversation. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Steve. <laughs> oh, what is no. a role playing game to you? Uh, role playing game. Role playing game. Role playing game. Well, I guess if you break it down, it's a uh, each person takes on a role, and you are pretending to be a specific character in a specific setting, and what you do is you. You kind of develop a, a personality for this character and you determine how they would act in particular situations. And then the success and failure of those actions that you decide are determined by a die roll. And we have various different types of dice, the most common one being uh, 20-sided. And that's what you'll, uh, when dice hit the table and you hear that, that's most likely one of them at least is that. Essentially what that does is break break all of your skills down to some kind of percentage chance of working and then you you roll and you see if it works 
And most of the time, if it doesn't work, that's where you lead to really good stories. <laughs> so that's a much better definition than what I had. Yours was but, fine. Yeah. yeah that <laughs> was, they all work. It's, this is what tabletop role playing is. It's different perspectives on the same thing. And we interweave our stories and our perspectives. Yeah. yeah. And then somebody rolls a nat one and it's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> or a nat 20 and we just all jump up from the table, knocking <laughs> stuff over. Yeah. And then we have like 30 minutes of resetting up everything. Yep. And then, yeah. Right. It's, uh, yeah. it's, I'm sorry, there's no podcast this week because somebody rolled a natural 20. <laughs> <laughs> and we flipped the table. Mm-hmm. I mean, tabletop role playing is really, like you said, something different for everyone that plays it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe some people play primarily one shot or they play in an organized setting like Pathfinder Society or what's or it they play the same character with a group of friends for like yeah. 20 plus years. And right. That's a, that's a new you know, one for me. Yeah. Yeah. That never happens. But the end goal is to, you know, spend time with friends, tell a collaborative story and have a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The mechanics are just a fun and interesting way to, as as Steve said, like see if you succeed or fail, and how to take those failures into a new path of the story. And then some tabletop RPGs really scar you as a character or as a person for life. So then you play the next time, uh, and your character does nothing. I'm talking about when I played Call of Cthulhu because that was very spooky. Uh, that was too spooky. <laughs> too spooky. Ralph, you've scarred me for life. Right. It's like no, I can't play. If you're this. listening to this, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> calling me out here. Yep. Hi everyone, my name is Jonathan Zhang, my pronouns are he, him, and I have been playing Dungeons & Dragons, actually more of tabletop role-playing games, for close to 10 years now, I want to say, and in that time, I've played a number of different systems, but I did start off with Pathfinder, back when it sort of first came out, and that was a real interesting experience, and now I'm here, playing Dungeons & Dragons, so I haven't really gone that far. That's cool, I didn't know that you... I didn't know that path that you started playing Pathfinder not just as your first system, but like as it was coming out and launching, and in those yeah. first however many. I think months we may years. have. I think I may have actually been like two to three, like a, a two years out from when it first started, but like came in kind of at the ground floor, and I could talk about the rest of it later. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name is David. Pronouns are he him. Uh, I too have actually been playing Dungeons and Dragons for about ten years started right about after college not to date myself and like my brother Jonathan said it was a really interesting first system because it was so complicated (laughs) (laughs) and also I played a lot in the organized group Pathfinder Society so there were kind of different standards you know when you're playing in a big social group to when you are playing at a home game at your kitchen table. But from there has evolved and changed to different systems, you know, playing with a lot of different house rules and a lot of different one-shot systems and other games. We've gone through a lot of house rules. Yeah, we've gone through a lot of house rules in these last 10 years. Some some good, most bad. (laughs) Yeah, most of them, they don't work. Playtesting is what that's called. Yeah. Yeah. But I love tabletop RPGs for the social aspect, just to be able to hang out with my friends on a Monday night talk for three hours and have a great story that comes out at the end of it. Oh, all right. I will, uh, I will go next. Hello everyone. My name is Steve. My preferred pronouns are he, him, and I have been playing, well, I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons since I was about 10. So that's going to be 
Uh, let me see. Carry the four. Uh, so 34 years now, I think, at this point that I've been playing this game or a similar game. Yeah. <laughs> um, I started out on it, the first game I ever played was actually because my uh, one of my neighbors had the uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Player's Handbook for first edition. Cool. And I remember my first character was an elf. And I, I don't remember too much more than that. Um, <laughs> was the class an elf too? <laughs> uh, the no, it was. Uh, well, yes and no. Um, so I believe it was an elf fighter. And my second character was actually from the basic edition, where elf, dwarf, and halfling were not only races; they were also classes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, l- like I said, I've been playing a very long time. I've actually played a lot of different types of tabletop games. So. D&D being the, the main one of them. Uh, I've played Pathfinder. I've played uh, Battletech. I've played Earthdawn. I've played Star Wars. I've played all all kinds of stuff from basically spanning from medieval fantasy through modern day all the way to futuristic uh, st- space. Far, far away. Yes, the galaxy far, far away. <laughs> Although that, that technically takes place before the medieval stuff because it is a long time ago. Oh, that's fair. Um, <laughs> did you ever play Shadowrun? Did you mention yes, that? Yes, okay. I did play. I did play Shadowrun as well. Okay, uh, Shadowrun, BattleTech, uh, Earthdawn. I believe I played Star Trek. Um, I've played um, licensed property games. Yes, pretty yes, much yes, all yes, of them. Yeah. A lot of the anything anything that came out like uh, mid '90s or before, I've I've probably at least played once, including one called Hole H O L, which is, stands for Human Occupied Landfill, where everybody plays a character that has been mutated because they live on a garbage planet. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So that one, if anybody can can find the uh, the rules for creating a character for that online, it is the most fun I've ever had actually making a character because <laughs> um, it, it's nuts. All right, everyone, and yeah. that is our announcement yeah. <laughs> for a new whole podcast. <laughs> Tune in. But yeah, that's uh, that's basically uh, anything else will come up during these interviews, I suppose. But yeah. that's uh, that's yeah. basically my my shtick. Hi, everyone. I'm Sophie. She, her pronouns. I have been playing tabletop RPGs for four, maybe five years because I was introduced to them from a guy I was dating and I was like, well, he thinks this is cool. Seems I should like probably nerd. like <laughs> do something that interests him, I guess. So Hi, try everyone, it. it's me. Whatever you, whatever you <laughs> do. Hi, everyone, it's me. I, I'm, I'm, I am the person. <laughs> whatever you do, do not marry that guy. Right. Oh, too late, Steve. Yeah. He's right. my husband right. now. <laughs> but yeah, we started playing Pathfinder and uh, Jonathan was the GM for that one and thankfully he was very kind and just told me if I succeeded or failed when I rolled the die and did the math for me because it was very complicated. It's, it's difficult math sometimes. But he let me have a very big bird <laughs> that I could try and turn into a tiny stone statue and put in my pocket when they were not safe. I'm surprised that was actually your first like game. Yeah. That seems like so long ago but it was yeah. a lot of fun. And, and just to clarify you had a big bird or a big bird? A big Space. Bird. Okay, so Bird. not a giant canary no, no, from children's bees. television. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah, I like playing uh, different characters and really trying to force myself to not play as me, Sophie, and make decisions a character would make and not me. Uh, Umbra, my D&D character, was pretty easy because she was just like, no, I'm going to fight till I die. <laughs> It'll be fine. <laughs> So, yeah, so I enjoyed and then she doing did. that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she got better. Yeah. 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 That's fine. It's only temporary. So, but yeah, they 
been fun and each different RPG has different decisions to make and mysteries to solve, problems to solve and it's fun to go through those tasks and puzzles with your friends. Yay friends. Yeah. Yay friends. Hello everyone. I am Nathan Lurs. I am your dungeon master and I use he him pronouns not necessarily all in that order of importance. Uh, I am a, a professional writer and editor and have been doing that for a long time and also have been now playing D&D for quite a while off and on. I or D&D and other tabletop role playing games and other board games and such. I first came to D&D in a very you know, kind of backing in kind of way. It's kind of the 21st century version of those kids who in the 80s got the, you know, the monster manual or whatever from the original Advanced Dungeons and Dragons and they never played because no one was around to play with them, but they just loved the art so much and the ideas of it. That was a little bit me. I actually got started with podcasts. That was kind of my gateway drug. I, in the fourth edition, uh, podcasting was still very new. There was a really small number of people who were doing it, and I was uh, I was hooked. I loved it so much. It was essentially my like early twenties catnip plus soap opera addiction where I had to listen. I had long commutes and I had to listen all the time. And I have consumed a huge number of podcasts now. <laughs> and now I'm compelled to, uh, to, you know, be a part of my own, I guess. I yeah started playing a little bit in the fourth, in the fourth edition. Steve was actually there for, I think what was my second ever D and D game at a random game shop in Chicago. And we had a nice time without going into too much detail, or we can't go into too, too, into too much detail some other time. We talked a little bit outside of the out of the session. We got connected on social media, and then years later, I put out a call to be like, "Hey, does anyone want to play D and D?" and all of the people around this table raised their hand. Uh, and Technically, I volunteered David. That's true. Right. And then I volunteered <laughs> Sophie. That's true. I'm pretty sure Steve has been there at the inception for all of us. Just yeah. like when no. we yeah, all first Steve started Steve was playing. at the beginning. He yes. was like the I'm, I'm, I'm the person in the high school photos who's in every photo just <laughs> right. in the background. Right. He was like, yeah. but I started playing and Steve was there. <laughs> oh, wait, you too? What? So uh, We find some pictures yeah. of the 1800s and Steve was there. Yes. <laughs> of, of some strange 20-sided <laughs> dice being rolled around like made of bone, bone. Yeah, yeah exactly uh yeah, i'm sure so, there's i'm sure there's a picture somewhere of gary gygax and dave arneson and then there's me in the background somewhere <laughs> doing something something yeah so i have mostly been a dungeon master throughout my uh, rpg career in part because you know the old adage of no one else ever wants to do it is definitely true but also because i really like doing it i am definitely you know i like being the center of attention certainly as the dm but also do really enjoy the collaborative storytelling aspect the ability to put stuff in front of your friends and see what they do with it and hopefully entertain them and make them happy and to have them connect with each other and you know have all of the the incredible experiences that go into tabletop role-playing games and to be someone who is able to help provide and foster that is is really meaningful and really lovely for me but yeah, I'm just I'm just really excited to be playing Dungeons and Dragons with my friends. Woo! Cool. All right, so we have kind of a fun setup here, but we'll be doing pretty much just 
character interviews or you know interviews about the characters. And the way we have this set up is Nathan over there has a bunch of scraps of paper, and each person will be drawing who is the person that they're going to be interviewing for today. So why don't we go ahead and get started? Move into the middle. We'll we'll put Wait, in a, a drum line. <laughs> okay. We'll shuffle them around. <laughs> and if it, and if <laughs> nope, no, nope, can't do that one. Ah, I got nope. Sophie. Oh, uh, I'll do Wait, this. I'll do you, this one. Did you, who did you I got mean? my brother. Oh, well, I have you, so I can't trade you. <laughs> I'm I'm doing this one. Nope. <laughs> well, <laughs> you could. Steve got himself. <laughs> Steve, Steve got himself. Yep, that's perfect. Okay, there we go. There we go. We got it. Who wants to go first? David, I'm throwing you in the hot seat. All right. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. I have none of this prepared, so. So it'll be fun. Mm-hmm. Well, a, a train leaving New York, <laughs> traveling it. <laughs> I'll start easy. Please describe your character, name, class, levels. Eventual subclasses. Okay. Multi-classing weirdness that you have already done. We really started with the probably most complicated and worst character here to do <laughs> yeah, this. Absolutely not. I will hear no negative comments about your character because you've That's put a right. lot of hard time, hard work, and time into building Casper. And you've and you've caused you've put me into hard time that is true. as your dungeon master in player creation jail. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hi, I'm David, and I play Kaskrin Brightmane, the Dwarven Warlock. So, Kaskrin Brightmane, if you've seen the art already, is a pretty squat dwarf. He's got the rock arms, he's got the golden spirals and everything. And he really is the result of a player who likes to min-max, a dungeon master who is okay with min-maxing, and then just way, way too much time. (laughs) So, Kaskrin originally started back when we were first playing this podcast way in 2019. Yep. It's uh, been a while. You know, his main concepts were he's going to do some magic stuff, he's going to have a warlock patron, and then he's going to be like a shield protector kind of guy, and that was it. To be fair, actually, I think I created yeah. the character first, yeah. and then you took it. <laughs> so, <Really>? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jonathan had actually created right. the concept, and I was like, ooh, that's neat. I'm going right. to do that. When we had first worked on these characters, I had created the like shield warlock sort of thing, and then we did it in like this sort of mock battle, and then he was like, oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, whatever I made sucked. So. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys ever considered playing twins in-game? <laughs> I think there was one. We did. Yeah, we, we did. In Pathfinder Society, we played two paladins who had like alligator pets or some reason. But there was a ability that you could get as a paladin where you could remove any condition if you were high enough level. And one of the conditions for Pathfinder at that point was death. And so we made two characters that could just get killed and then have the other resurrect each other until we would just live forever. Oh, it was it was a really dumb thing because once you got the status, you were immune to it. So I would remove death from someone. I would die. My brother would remove death from me. He would die. And then I would remove death from him, but be immune to it. So we would just sort of negate the death condition. And I remember we did it once to an, a very important NPC who died at the end of one module. And the GM was like, okay, what? <laughs> He's supposed to die. It's like, oh no, I fixed that. 
Wait, you what? Oh, no, yeah, he's we're, he's fine. We're fine, too. <laughs> and now you all see, you get a glimpse <laughs> into what I meant when I said I had also been doing hard time right. in the character creation process. I, anyway. think, I think he like made us fall for that because yeah. we're like, no, you can't stop that. Right, yeah. It's like, I think we completed the scenario, but then we both went to like player, like, yeah. Player gr- jail. Yeah, yeah, player jail. It's like go tone or something. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so back to Kaskrin after mm-hmm. all of that. Kaskrin is currently one level of warlock. Eventually, he will be a uh, the the familiar one, Pact of the Chain. He is also one level of sorcerer, and his subclass is stone sorcerer. However, <laughs> ordinarily there is a unearthed arcana stone sorcerer subclass, but instead of that one, we are using a homebrew one by a person who goes by Kibbles Tasty on the internet. They have a very good rework of the Stone Sorcerer that fixes a lot of things, makes it a lot more balanced, and is just generally more fun to play. So that is what Kaskrin is and why he looks the way he does. The second part of it is he became a warlock early in his life and chose to pledge his soul to the Eternal Citadel, which is a giant floating citadel out in space that really stands for order and balance. Eventually, he will get some more cool protected abilities but for right now he's just chilling with that so the eternal citadel is also a homebrew patron do you remember where that comes from oh yes the eternal citadel is also a homebrew patron that comes from a warlock compendium i will find the specific uh, we'll put them on the website yeah it's it's i know the acronym is like kofsa it's like compendium of something 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 don't worry we'll, yeah. we'll link it that's where the original idea came from. After some time of going back and forth, I also wanted to change some parts of it. And so now the version that Kaskrin uses is custom by me, but uses the Eternal Citadel name. So most of the abilities are different. Some of the spells are same, but it remains the Citadel in spirit. What does the Citadel stand for? Like what is having made a pact with his patron, what does that mean for Kaskrin? Yeah. The idea of the Citadel is it goes to different worlds and finds champions that are neither good nor evil, but will do whatever they can to preserve order. So there are tales of warlocks of this patron that will lead a rebellion against some evil city. And then when the rebellion is complete and new people have taken power, sometimes they will also become corrupt. And so the warlock will start over and lead a new rebellion against the ones that he has just put into power. But at the end of the day, whatever preserves balance throughout the cosmos is what the Citadel stands for. And so Kaskrin is not necessarily good nor evil. I believe he's lawful neutral, technically, Mm -hmm. is his alignment. But he very much embodies the citadel's values of keeping everything as status quo as he can nice i I do have uh uh, one question i think i'm going to ask to everybody Mm -hmm. i will interrupt your interview to ask (laughs) this question cool were there any outside sources that you used as inspiration for cass's personality or is it all you that's also an entirely valid answer yeah i would say this one is mostly me i don't but also because his personality right now is very simple. I mean, he's just a very basic stalwart protector, trained in the military, and then is now going on an adventure. 
So I may take more inspiration from other sources as we go on and, and parts of the character become more fleshed out and apparent. But for right now, mostly just me. So what was important for your character to be good at? And are there any mechanics that reflect it? It was very important for Kaskrin to, you know, obviously be a protector, but I also wanted him to have some, one, you know, skills outside of combat, and so he's very good at talking. And then two, I wanted him to have some sort of damage mitigation, but not necessarily just straight healing. And so part of what the Citadel provides is the ability to give temporary HP to both himself and allies. So it's not a always thing. He can't just like willy-nilly give temporary HP. Instead, it's tied to his ability to be in front, to deal damage, and be that shield. So one of his mechanics is to be able to give temporary HP to someone on the same turn that he does damage as a bonus action. And so I find that that is a really interesting way to keep people up for longer without just strict damage negation from healing. Cool. So what is Kaskrin's goal in joining the guild? So this actually hasn't come up yet in the episodes that we've done, but Kaskrin has a rival that he has spent some time with in his birth city of Lotros. And Kaskrin being an older man, you know, he has seen this rival grow from being a small babe all the way up to now you know he's in his early 30s his rival is and his rival has lived a storied life outside of the walls of Lotros you know he's gone on adventures he's gotten tales about himself told and now his rival has come back to Lotros and has said Kaskrin you need to do more with your life you know you can't sit behind these walls be part of the city watch forever and so through a series of events, his rival got him a position on the Golden Tree. And it was very much a uh, sort of strong-armed, you know, it's like, you're going to go do this. I've signed you up. You cannot back out. Interesting. And so Kaskrin left That's his... That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Kaskrin has left his comfortable life behind and is taking the next steps forward. When is Kaskrin happiest? So Kaskrin is happiest when he is comfortable. You know, he has spent 30 years doing basically the same thing, being part of the City Watch. And so he loves at the end of a, a long patrol where he just gets to like sit in his comfy recliner, have a nice drink by the fire. Mm -hmm. Or when he is out with his friends, carousing, having drinks and having a good time. But he he likes his creature comforts. Would, would you say... He Kaskrin is a creature of habit, of routine. Oh, absolutely. I would say he he loves the patrols where he gets to have the same rotation for like two weeks. You know, he just gets to walk the same path, see the same sights, and then go back at the end of the day and, you know, put on his little slippers, put on his like little bathrobe and just relax for the evening. Perfect. Pipe and brandy snifter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So opposite of that, what does Kaskrin absolutely hate doing? Yeah. So that that is a very, I think, obvious opposite of that, where he hates sleeping on the ground. Like, <laughs> so he's really hating these yeah. first episodes. <laughs> yeah. He was not anticipating that adventuring would mean going out of the city so much and like being <laughs> in the caravan, sleeping on a wagon, all of this like outdoorsy stuff. And so even though it costs 
like it, it is heavier he brings a cot with him instead of a bedroll and he sets that up because like he cannot stand sleeping on the hard ground mm-hmm. that's funny <laughs> <laughs> i just i totally got a picture of him as um uh, princess vespa from space balls <laughs> it's like like the the giant things yeah. of luggage, mm-hmm. the enormous hair dryer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Half of this wagon is Cascarin's luggage. Yeah. Like, why did we bring all this? <laughs> uh, you mentioned that Cascarin is from Lotros. Yes. Uh, what what does Cascarin miss slash love about that city, and what is he, you know, not sad to never see again, or maybe never see again? So he loves the people of it and he loves them for their diversity not because you know just it's a large city there's a lot of people there but he loves that he can as a city watchman help people with a variety of different problems and in different situations that's why he has been a, a guardsman for so long is that he thinks that he can do more good out in the streets talking with people than he ever could as a lieutenant or commander he loves being face to face with these people, and part of what Lotros gives him is the opportunity to talk to a lot of different people. As far as what he won't be missing, there was a really annoying thief that always got <laughs> just right under Castrin's skin. And he just had like this weird blue skin, he had this dumb hat, and these like frogs that followed him everywhere for some reason. But no matter what Castrin could do, as far as what he won't be this missing, this little like blue guy was always one step ahead of him. Just like stealing stuff and even just playing pranks, getting up in his face because Castrin could never stop him. And over the, the months, it became kind of a game, you know, something that Castrin would almost look forward to because it kept things fresh. But man, he would not miss him, except for the fact <laughs> that Checkers <laughs> is ah. on a wagon with him. Ah, it's me, Checkers. I just totally got a uh, uh, a Spider-Man, J. Jonah Jameson vibe from you two. <laughs> I was like, he's a menace. We have to stop him. <laughs> was there a time where you guys like, where you ever had to like team up? You know, where it's like, damn it, Checkers, you're a wild card. And you're always making trouble, but I need you. And here I am, two weeks from retirement. So it's, I would say, the thing that it sort of is canon for checkers, and I don't know if Caswin, you've ever decided <laughs> That's this. That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's actually the opposite thing. So in Lotros, checkers has a tiny little orphanage set up, but he realized that he couldn't just steal the building that he was going to be using mm-hmm. for the orphanage. There's like a land you know, grant and like a title and everything. So he had to legally buy the building but checkers you know can't he can can't really read that well or write Sorry, le- <laughs> legally buy was in air quotes i just yes you know, i think that's yeah. an important distinction right. good call sophie so he needed Kaskarin's help to sort of do the paperwork take out the loan go and actually purchase the building and there was a lot of rumbling from Cas, but it's like Ugh, checkers this is for a good cause like you are buying this for an orphanage like fine i will do this right a little appreciation from Cass that he's actually trying to buy it and hey, not hey, just... Hey. I'll, I'll give you 10 gold pieces if you buy a building for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's so, probably how it was introduced. Are you, was like, are you over 21? Yeah. You buy this building for me? <laughs> right, just just a little... Just, I just need a favor. Uh, just, you know, there's this building I need to, to own. <laughs> it's for the kids. Don't worry about it. Yeah, and so Cassgren went through all of, like the bureaucracy to get this building bought and then, you know, deeded over to Checkers. I don't know if Checkers would even have the deed. It might be under Cassgren because like... 
What would Checkers do with a deed? <laughs> That's true. He'd just lose it. Yeah. That's yeah, probably under Casper's name. Yeah. It's probably too much bureaucracy to change the owner of <laughs> yeah. the deed. Yeah. It was like, yeah. But that was probably the situation where Casper and Checkers actually had to like team, team up. up. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Alrighty. Do we want to keep going? I don't know how many questions we want to ask each other. Do you want me to go through the whole list? No, just like one more. That's that's good. All right. Um, Make it a good one. Give us a wild card. Yeah. What, yeah, I know. I'm looking at the wild card list. Uh... What does your character think is a huge secret about them that everyone actually knows? Man, that's like deepest lore. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, another one. I mean, it's kind of a take on that, too, is what is your character's biggest flaw? And specifically, whether whether cast knows it or not, or whether other people know it or not is kind of another take on that as yeah. well. Okay. So I'm going to go with the what is Kaskrin's biggest flaw because I think it is an interesting question. So Kaskrin does not actually know this yet, but he has a... Um, like, I don't think this is like enough of a secret that I would I would hide it, but Kaskrin is like very afraid of death more so than like a normal person, which is counterintuitive given that he is a frontliner he has the shield he takes the damage but part of the reason he does that why he wears such heavy mail is to stop himself from being hurt you know subconsciously and the same thing too when he was in Lotros when he first made his pact with the eternal citadel he thinks that it's because you know he's trying to save people he wanted to you know in a time of turmoil like protect as many people as he could but like Let's be real here. Like no warlock t- like sells their soul to their patron because they want to do good. It's because of fear, and so it was more he wanted like that little core of stability just for like another moment, and you know to you know in this chaotic time around him that he reached out to the citadel, and the citadel said yes. I like that. That's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah, really good. I like that. So yeah, that is Kaskrin's flaw, and we'll see it. He doesn't, you know, we'll see it come up a little bit later, probably, maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, David. Yeah. So I'll go next. I am interviewing Sophie, and we have kind of similar questions, but I'll just do kind of a, a different take on it. But Sophie, why don't you start off by telling us what your character's name is, who they are, and, you know, just some of the mechanical pieces behind them, their level, level uh, classes, subclasses, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Sub, sub subclasses, yeah. subdermal sub classes. Yeah. The changes that you've made to the individual subclasses since you're... Mul- no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I am playing Valeska Carter, a second level cleric. I almost said paladin. <laughs> cleric of the Arcana Domain. And I was going to have a custom subclass shenanigans, which was really just combining the knowledge and arcana domain for to make the arcane knowledge domain and then and i was like no this is too complicated even though i was taking like two subclasses so from the player's to, handbook you decided to not go with no canna no canna nope <laughs> no on the no canna uh so just strictly arcana domain and i don't think i will stray away from cleric Though I definitely don't want to plan too far ahead as in the, you know, year and a half we had to plan our characters, I went very, very far ahead and I was like, well, this is my like final form of Valeska (laughs) that I want to happen. 
And like going back to level two had to be like, oh, wait. Hard she, reset. She has not had these life experiences yet. She would, you know, not be as impressive as she will eventually become. But I had to put the training training yeah. wheels back on. That's always really tough to do. Yeah. Cool. And I know one of the things that you had kind of worked on for this character was that you haven't really ever played spellcasters before in a Dungeons and Dragons game. So playing a full cleric is kind of a new experience. Yes. I've only played in a campaign one other character, Umbra Bearclaw, who was a barbarian. And I was going to do full barbarian until... I realized barbarians don't have a reason to talk to people in game, so I was like, eh, let's let's put some paladin in there, get some charisma character going." Character development, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's why you don't plan ahead. Uh-huh. And you know, because apparently there was an and here's our some more air quotes incident <laughs> that sparked that, which is which is great. I I love that that like you know the character doesn't go how you expect it to go because stuff happens in game and you you're kind of react to that and you're like okay this well this actually makes sense for mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for her to do in this case yeah so as of right now i will try to go cleric but val has a thirst for knowledge and i feel like that can get into some very interesting situations so we'll see how she handles them Cool. One other question I have for you, just in terms of the mechanics. Mm -hmm. Why is it that you decided to go with cleric as opposed to the sort of, you know, standard intelligence wizard sort of thing? Oh, wizards are too complicated. Cleric (laughs) was like a nice, like, beginner spellcaster level, and I can still hit things if I need to. You don't have to prepare spells. You just get all of them. You can pick which one. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, you do still have to prepare spells, but you get, Mm. you can choose from any. Yeah, I think that was the overwhelming part. And what I, what I, Sophie, feel like makes a wizard too complicated is I really have to like oof, narrow it down and pick and choose where it's like cleric. It's like, ah, they're all in my brain. Mm-hmm. Just got to pray like, for them. <laughs> yeah. Take some time out of my morning and figure them out. And then I, Sophie, will have to remember that I can change them. <laughs> and is there any particular cleric spell or sort of list of spells that you're really excited to get to? Well, I had a taste of Spirit Guardians when we were playtesting level 5, and I really miss that now <laughs> at level 2. But I've taken a few interesting ones, and I have two cantrips. One, Mind Sliver, and then another one, Encode Thoughts, which I am realizing we have been playing completely wrong oh good, <laughs> good <laughs> but I like, the, I like the way we're playing it's, it it's so. a good thing we caught that early <laughs> yeah. spoiler, spoiler to anyone listening to the next two ish episodes of the uh of the I podcast haven't, i haven't used encode thoughts yet in our main campaign oh, this was our, our level five yeah. testing yeah we're safe yeah. We're good. So. Yeah. thank god but I like the way that you've been playing it anyway. Like, yeah, yeah. this is 100%. Cool. Yeah. So there's like an intelligence check I think you have to make to like read the thought thread and it's a thing in the thing. Eh, we'll um, get to it, but that doesn't sound fun at all. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> That's a little boring. So those are two that I, I'm interested in and yeah. Cool. I, I don't know enough. I haven't looked that far ahead. Yeah. That's fair. There's a lot of them too. Okay, uh, just kind of getting around the... Oh, oh, sorry, one other thing. Clerics seemed very uh, utilitarian, ah. and I really liked that. Yeah. I don't like to be, like, pigeonholed in a class, and, mm-hmm. like, you can play wizard in a lot of different ways, but, like, there's really one 
one really good way to play a wizard, like min-max kind of wise. <laughs> and like, well, I don't really try to min-max my characters. I don't, I do like to be good. Yeah, right. At the mechanics. Right. <laughs> so. Exactly. So just kind of talking a little bit then about the character itself, Valeska Carter. Maybe you can tell the audience a little bit about where Valeska came from. Oh, Valeska came from me watching Agent Carter during the pandemic and <laughs> wanting to build Maggie Carter as a D&D character. Nice. <laughs> well, good. That answers my question. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, what was the inspiration? Ah, this very specific person on yes. this TV show. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, and then I think that's where like I was very set on her like final form of like she's gonna be Maggie Carter she's gonna be a fucking badass and <laughs> had to like reel that back and like okay no she maybe this is how she started out and I think that's why I had her come from a order because her mm-hmm. parents are part of the illustrious Atheum but I think that's why I wanted her to come from a order that really valued knowledge and not so much just like book learning but how to do practical things Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how to invent things what is the best way to grow crops how can we experiment with blacksmithing techniques how can how to perform post-mortem um examinations right yes (laughs) um and really figure out how can we make society better by learning and by sharing that knowledge with anyone willing to sit down and listen that's cool i like that Mm -hmm. not just sitting over there in an ivory tower like haha i have all the knowledge but going out and actively sharing it with people yeah her order would be very against anyone who is hoarding knowledge Mm -hmm. and not sharing it Mm -hmm. and i think I don't want to like skip ahead on questions, but that's one reason she's joined the guild is to go out into the world now that guilds are back up and running and wanting to not necessarily set up a branch of the uh, illustrious Atheum in Agmar, but, you know, learn more from that city and write letters back to her parents and say, you know, this is what I've learned in my journeys. And, you know, is this a city that's open to more knowledge coming in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of a tangential question too, and maybe we don't have the answer for this yet, but is there a reason why Valeska chose to join the Golden Tree in particular, as opposed to another guild maybe? Or was the Golden Tree just like the first one that reached out and said, hey, we want you? I had a very specific reason for her joining the Golden Tree, which I don't think is valid anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So, and and I'm going to get into it a little bit later, but so I I think... The Golden Tree for me has taken on a very interesting shape where there are a lot of different types of adventuring guilds throughout the many centuries and millennia of kind of the world's history. And the Golden Tree is one that is very well known because it is in a bunch of it was at one point in time, at least in a bunch of different cities all around the world. So tons of communities had a Golden Tree branch, you know, kind of there and to have that sort of an organization and that sort of like name recognition, essentially, it still holds a lot of weight in a lot of places in the city. And, and excuse me, it holds a lot of weight in a lot of places around the world. And so it has deep roots. Y- indeed, it does. <laughs> uh, and, ro- and, and, and wide at that. And wide, yeah. Um, and so it's totally up to your you guys and your characters and that kind of stuff but i think it is actually very legitimate 
to get a knock on the door from this adventuring guild and you or someone in your life would know who or what this is and that being something exciting and something mm-hmm. noteworthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So people have heard about the golden trees. So joining it's a big deal. Yeah, exactly. And again, it's not, there's again, all sorts of sizes and specialties and types and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you guys are kind of a classic we go and solve problems and we are the brave ones and we we step out to protect people to protect communities to gather knowledge to uh to do whatever um and build build relationships in the communities that we're in and that kind of stuff um so yeah have a very strong reputation even if they're not necessarily the like Oh yes, they went out and campaigned and changed the world and, you know, had like defining moments in their history. They still have a very strong reputation basically. Valeska would have been around when Arlen Brushbarrel started founding the Golden Tree as the guildmaster wanting to revive this very ancient and well-known guild and starting in Rockma, Valeska's hometown. She would have been there and heard about it. She wouldn't have been the first like class of heroes or adventurers because she was too young. Valeska is, I don't have an exact age, but this is very much her, I've graduated high school, I'm going off to college kind of adventure mm-hmm. and making her own path in the world and her own name because she's very much been a part of her parents' world. Mm-hmm. Okay, and maybe you can tell me a little bit if you're willing to share about Valeska's family or parents. Yeah, uh, she had a very nuclear family. She is adopted. Mm-hmm. Her father, Caden, and mother, Miri, are. Uh, Miri is part of the illustrious Atheum. Caden is a book merchant, but is very active in the order. And her older brother, Caden Jr., is. Uh, <laughs> studying up and going to take over the family business eventually. So they are very much a brother and sister relationship Mm -hmm. where they hate each other. But if anyone messes with the other, fuck you, you will die. (laughs) (laughs) And are Valeska's parents supportive of her decision to join the golden tree? Yes. Okay. They are very supportive and Val writes home. She probably has like a letter, maybe two letters a day you know, <laughs> in a in a pouch ready for the next caravan headed back to to Rachma with all of the like very detailed it's probably in like captain's log style of writing. Sure, yeah. But then it's also like, and I love you, mom. <laughs> yeah, they're they're very supportive and they're there's a deeper reasoning for her going out and adventuring, uh-huh. but uh-huh. that will be something that everybody learns about together through the story. Cool. I love it. So just two more questions. Mm -hmm. Um, What would you say has been Val's most favorite thing to learn about so far? That is a hard one. I think I would say different languages. Different languages. Okay. And Val knows 11. Is that right? Yes. As I consult a list of them. 
Yes. Okay. I okay. haven't picked all of them. Okay, yet. but that's that's how many languages she has right. is yes. that she has to have a separate piece of paper with them all written down and she still does not have them all yet. Right. Yeah. The potential to know 11 in this world. Okay, cool. Yes. And she is constantly actively studying more mm-hmm. because that is the biggest barrier to a knowledge exchange is having no way to communicate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she wants to be able to communicate with everyone and I think that's actually probably a spell I was looking at was mm-hmm. tongues and I think it's only a wizard spell so we'll have to figure that out I don't know <laughs> Nathan's I don't just like, like that's not gonna stop me we'll figure it out <laughs> <laughs> wonderful and then this is sort of my wild card question but mm-hmm. uh, for you Sophie tell me what is something that might happen that would cause Valeska to betray the party Ooh, it's I my my initial instinct is the secret but I have been thinking, and I try, I try not to think too hard about it, but like, mm-hmm. what if she is confronted with the, you could have like ultimate knowledge if we find that yeah. object of power. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That would be a very... Tempting. Very tempting situation yeah. for, for Val. Yeah, like who knows what could happen then, mm-hmm. right? And it, I think it would be very circumstantial as well. Because mm-hmm. like... If she had to betray the party to get it, I lean yeah. towards no, but like, And that's, that's kind of why I kind of think I like the question of what is the flaw a little bit more. Oh, yeah. Because, okay. well, but I think it's interest. That's an interesting example of it because the, you know, kind of you can guess what the flaw is from there. Right. Mm-hmm. But it applies to so many things. And like, to what extent, you know, like, yeah. is that the stakes? Is it like it has to be a world altering amount sure. no. of, of mm. information or is it you know kind of where's the slippery slope right yeah. of like is it pursuit of knowledge at all all costs period mm-hmm. it's always good to have more knowledge or is it well okay I'll dabble in some things or I will always choose knowledge over getting treasure right or like I think Val's a really interesting character because of how principled she is but and ha- but how much the principles lay outside of let's just help people, right? Mm-hmm. She wants right. to help people, of course. Mm-hmm. And that's like the goal ultimately, right? Is yeah. that she wants that knowledge so that she could bring it back and she can tell people and, and teach people. But someone needs to be the intermediary, right? Yeah. To get that. And yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be really interested to see how she navigates that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. All right, that's what I have. Thanks, Sophie. That was yeah. that was really enlightening. I appreciate that. Hi, everyone. David here with the mid-roll. If you're interested in not just the characters, but the world of Rixie itself, stick around to the end, where we've got a quick blurb from our dungeon master, Nathan. We'll also be doing another behind-the-screen episode soon, focused solely on the world and how we use the game of Microscope to build it. As always... Don't forget to check us out on Twitter at Reckless underscore Attack and on Instagram at Reckless Attack Podcast. And if you think these interviews are fun, let us know by leaving us a comment or a review on your podcast listening service. All right, let's keep it rolling. All right, Steve. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) It's time. Why don't you tell me a little bit about Selv Astralin? Ah, uh, well, Selv is a silver dragonborn, and 
pretty tall as as most dragonborn tend to be, except he is a, a lot skinnier. He, most dragonborn kind of have this stocky kind of, uh, or, or I, I should say most dragonborn, uh, as if they're real. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but most of them in the typical core rule book are described as being very, very stocky and heavy. And I wanted to make him a little bit more more along the lines of an Asian dragon than a Western dragon. He does have some hair and it's, uh, he is a, like I said, a silver dragonborn. And so his hair and scales are kind of a, um, a mixture and fading between silver and white for the most part. He is a monk. So, so far two levels of monk. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the things I was, I was thinking about when I was, uh, when I created him was, that I really enjoyed playing monks from first edition D and D, and there is a the the way of the open hand, which is one of the subclasses you can choose at third level, is very similar to what the monks were like in first first edition. So he, uh, that's kind of where where it kind of all developed. Is I I, I kind of wanted to play that type of character and and kind of get back to try try something that I had done before but in a new edition of of D&D and kind of see cuz there there are a lot of differences I, <laughs> a lot of differences yeah what were some of these like new things that you really wanted to to focus on with self so one of the things i i really enjoyed was the stunning strike and the kind of the the fact that he gets he is more difficult to hit because he is wiser like the, just the 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 fact that his wisdom factors into his armor class and his is uh, not his ability to get hit, but his, I mm-hmm. guess, disability to get hit. His ability to <laughs> Almost evade, not, not evade getting hit. Yeah. Yes. Uh, do, you, um, do you imagine that kind of being like role playing it as experience in battle or? So th- there's two, there's two things. So his part of his armor class comes from dexterity, just like everybody else's. And so that's just, you know, how fast he is and he's able to like dodge and, and weave and do that kind of stuff. But the, the wisdom part comes from his ability to read people and like his, his insight into other people and say, and say, look, I, I, I've seen you and based on just what I've been able to glean from the way you kind of act, I'm anticipating that you're the type of person who's going to throw a punch this way. Mm-hmm. And and so he kind of like uses that to his insight into other people to actually help avoid getting hit, essentially. And so first edition monks were typically, they had their, you know, their some type of acrobatics and they were good at climbing and they were good at like all that kind of stuff. So that's that's kind of the skill set that I gave him was very similar to what what first edition monks had. Um yeah, where was I going with that? I think I've reached wherever I was going yeah, with that. Yeah. So you said that, you know, Selv has had a lot of experience. He's gotten a lot of insight. Like where has he gotten all of this experience? Like where does he come from? Selv was actually from a very small uh, born in a very small town at the at the base of a mountain and this this mountain had a um, a monastery uh, in it way up high in the mountains in the snow. And so one of the things that was traditionally done in the town was that you would go to the monastery to get some type of education. And then there was a decision that was made while you were still young, whether you would remain there to continue learning from them, or if you have gotten the the amount of education you need, you know, you can go back and likely, you know, like basically the, if you have gotten your grade school education, you know 
the basics, you can go be a productive member of society and you can go back to the town and pick up a job somewhere and do do whatever you need to do. Or you stay at the monastery and you you keep learning. So the kind of like the higher education. And it was um, self-decided and uh, along with his, his family that he would stay to essentially become enlightened. That's cool. That is really cool. Awesome. So has he reached enlightenment yet? Uh, I hope not. So I, I guess well, as a correlate to that question, like where, what is he doing with the, the golden tree? What does he hope to achieve by joining the skill? Yes. So the answer is no. If you ask him, no, he has not achieved enlightenment. And basically, if you ask anybody at the monastery who has achieved enlightenment, they will still tell you, no, they have not achieved, uh, achieved enlightenment. But self has not. And he is well aware that he has not. <laughs> However, an invitation came in specifically addressed to him saying that the Golden Tree Monastery needed him. The guild, you mean? The guild, yes. Golden Tree Monastery. Yeah. <laughs> the Golden I don't Tree know. Guild. Maybe they have yeah. a farm system. Yeah. Uh, I told you I would mess this up somehow. <laughs> um, the, the, the Golden Trees needed him. They needed his wisdom and basically his, because they didn't know what they were the golden tree is kind of everywhere and kind of involved in all these things. They needed somebody that has a, a very calming effect on other people. And so self kind of, whether he knows it or not, kind of projects this, this calm. And so his masters at the monastery figured it would be a good, a good match. They would, they would be able to send somebody out into the world to kind of see what everything else is like because their monastery is kind of hidden. They have some contact with other monasteries, but I mean, that's basically what they're, what they're limited to. Mm -hmm. And this would give them the chance to send somebody out and to experience and see what else, what else is out there and then kind of report back occasionally of, of what they found. Gotcha. Okay. So Selva is going back to the monastery at some point. Yes, and maybe even maybe even several times. Like whenever, if our travels take us close by, he might take a little side trip, uh, side trip up to the mountain, which I, I'm sure he would invite the rest of the party to go. Val to go would with. come in a heartbeat. Casper <laughs> <laughs> would think, "Ugh, is it going to be cold? <laughs> How many steps are there?" Right. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> so, Selv is a calm, collected cucumber. Kind of, kind of. The, the kind of I, I I pulled a little bit of inspiration from basically two well I won't call them two main one main source and one ancillary source. the The first one is the old television show Kung Fu with David Carradine. So basically, David Carradine plays Kwai uh, Chen Kane, who is a a monk that is basically wandering around the um uh, the Wild West. And cool. so, and he's, he's just, he's just traveling and he's, he's very, he's very calm. He's just out there to kind of see, see what's out there. And if he's asked to teach, he will, he will teach, but you know, he generally keeps to himself for the most part until he's drawn in by other stuff or conflicts or, or whatnot. The other ancillary inspiration was uh, actually from an episode of the Simpsons. Ooh. Oh. There's an episode where, and I, I, I honestly, I cannot remember the the main plot line of that episode <laughs> but what i remember is is homer being outside and there's a bunch of people about to attack a guy who's dressed all in white and just kind of standing there calmly and marge is like is like homer get inside and he's like oh but you know he's about to do something cool and so 
Marge drags Homer inside, the door closes, then there's just and he runs back outside, opens the door, and like all these people are unconscious, and the guy in white is still standing there exactly the same way as he was, and Homer's like, oh, I missed it. Perfect. That's great. I love that. That's awesome. So, Self obviously has a lot of very good strengths, but is there a particular flaw that you want to share with us? Yeah, maybe. So okay. there is involved in Selv's backstory and the kind of like the history of the monastery and, and all this stuff, there is um there's a thing. Mm. Oh. And so that thing takes precedence for at least for Selv over anything else that is that is being done is the is the that thing. And so everything he does is kind of weighed up against that and determines if if he's able to go forward and continue to do what he's doing, or is this going to put the the thing in jeopardy? In which case, he has to figure a way to either make it so it doesn't, or stop doing the thing he's doing and go back to the the thing. Okay. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I like that. And maybe someday we'll find out what the thing is. I'm oh, excited. I, ho- I hope so. Yeah. I hope yeah. so. Because it's... <laughs> It's a pretty cool the thing, I know the and, thing. right? Like I, I'm I know like, what the I thing have is. a sweet, sweet thing. Yeah, right. yeah. And it's like I, I know, I, uh, I know all your things. Yeah, <laughs> like and you two, you two may have sweet custom homebrew builds, but like we have secrets. We have things, yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> we have no secrets. We're, we're, they're very uh, we're open books. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> awesome. Is there anything else about self that you want to share with us? I worked in uh, just a little bit of background lore here, um, but I did work in a couple of like I, I have the the name of the head of the monastery, yeah. and I have some yeah. of the name of the head masters and people that were were teaching at the monastery. Mm-hmm. I basically took a character, my my monk character from first edition, and made him the head of the monastery. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's like literally yeah. the best part of yeah. right because of creating things. Why else? Why else would I make a background if I yeah. can't do that? And then I actually took uh, one of my. One of my good friends was playing a monk on a Neverwinter Nights, and the way he was doing it, I, I absolutely loved that monk also. So that became one of the other masters at the monastery. So there are two two masters at the monastery with ties elsewhere, I guess. <laughs> so so if they're listening, and this is an early plug to to ensure loyal listenership, that if you ever hear that we are going to the monastery, you may have a chance to guest star as this NPC. On Reckless Attack. I'll say it right now. Oh, well, there you go then. <laughs> um, I, Sophie, am just curious. Self, you barely mentioned his family. Ah. Tell so, us more. Uh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So um, both his parents are still alive, and he also has a sister. So uh, his mother is Krilla, his father is Krev, and his sister is Sarla, all with the surname Asterlin. An interesting... Um, hmm. I was it spells cast. That's what I mm. K's A's and S's. Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Un- unintricate web. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so what I did was I when I was first coming up with, with Selv, I, I decided I wanted to play a Dragonborn monk. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I like to do is I kind of get inspiration for names and stuff by running certain phrases or words through Google translators. Mm-hmm. So I basically said Translate the word silver into as many different things as you possibly can. And then I took those and I kind of bastardized them a little bit. So, selv is actually silver 
in another language and Asterlin comes from another another language silver so self's name is literally silver silver yeah. at least in, in the real world equivalent yeah, yes in real world equivalent <laughs> just um, like the lion king like the lion is coming the lion is coming <laughs> yeah what about the uh, monastery so the monastery is the uh, the bingjuzi monastery and that i actually i actually ran through a translator for i believe i used Chinese and Japanese and I think I finally landed on the Chinese version of it but it uh, it literally translates to the air of ice monastery cool because it is up in the mountains mm-hmm. and I was trying to stay away from stuff like glacier <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and things like that one of the things I did put in was I think it was literally like icy ground or gr- ground of ice or something like that. And it came back with a, with a phrase. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. But then I translated it the other way and it literally came to Glacier. <laughs> <laughs> like, All right. No, no not that. So yeah. I, I finally settled on the air of ice or like the frozen air mm-hmm. monastery. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what it came to is being juicy. Very cool. Nice. Well, I have one more question for you, Steve. Uh-oh. Uh, if self was a tree. Right. <laughs> What is Selv's most treasured memory? Ooh. So I think it, it would have to be after he had received his initial, let's call it grade school education uh, at the monastery. And he went to meet with his, uh, his, his family and also with one of the, one of the masters at the, at the monastery. I think his favorite memory is where he he decided to tell them that he was going to stay there and continue his education because he didn't know how that would be received by, by his family. And when they started smiling and laughing and like being happy for him, like this is, that's, that sealed it in self's mind that this was the right thing to do. And he was absolutely thrilled that his family backed him to this. That's wonderful. I like that. I love that. So which which just just goes to show that not all D and D characters have to have a tragic backstory That's where right. they are yeah. where they are yep. orphaned and they have no family and you know all of that. Hey, I resemble yeah. that statement. Yeah. <laughs> Let me introduce present, you, com- present company excluded. Right. <laughs> Let me introduce you to Checkers, the orphan who has no family, <laughs> <laughs> who has like aggressively rejected his fa- his his whole giant family right. unit. Basically, right. I also I also think it's it, it's also nice to give that kind of thing to the DM because. Hey, now there's more people to put in trouble and to like get the characters to do stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and, and um mm-hmm. right. more people for me to murder. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, maybe we see, you know, if anything happens to them, maybe we see a not so calm and serene self. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. Maybe his his eyes go from purple to violet violet. <laughs> <laughs> to, to other purple. To, to, no, no, to violent. Uh, <laughs> purple yes. to violent. Yeah. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> yes. yes, that's it. Uh-huh. Leave that cut in there. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Thanks, Steve. What an awesome character. Oh, thanks for the questions. Oh, we've got we've got one more now, huh? Let Mm -hmm. me let me get my other notes out. Cool. Let me introduce you to the best check the best character. The best checkers. The The best best checkers. The best checkers. The best checkers. Checkers. The best. We're calling you out. Any home game who's ever had a character named Checkers, or you know, NPC, an animal. Uh, or even the game of checkers. Right. All worse <laughs> than this boy. So the problem is, Suck it. like, I'm sure there were, like, little bits and pieces that all kind of... Uh, I'll wait to start, start talking before. <laughs> <laughs> as, as Jonathan does Heck his own em. interview. Right, as I talk to myself. <laughs> I had some ideas as right. to where this might go. Yeah. 
So Jonathan. Hi. <laughs> tell us uh, a little bit about the the character you're playing and you know what uh, what they're like. All right, absolutely. So hi everyone. My name is Jonathan and I play Checkers, the Grung slash Frog Druid and his trusty frog pal Mango and his tiny little green tree frog Junior. So uh, that's a lot of words, but I play Checkers, the <laughs> Druid. He is currently level two. That said, he is a level one fighter, level one Druid. <laughs> and the second part of that question was, what is he like? Um, he's kind of just like a little <laughs> a little jerk, I think. <laughs> like aggressively just... A little turd. Yeah, he's aggressively simple, I think, is probably the best way to put it, in that he doesn't really have many motivations besides just proving everyone else wrong and just having a good time with his life. Like my whole thing behind him was he's only going to live like 20 years tops because that's as long as his people really live. And he's like, yeah, I'm just going to do whatever I want with that time. <laughs> so he doesn't fear death. The only thing he's really afraid of is just like not doing interesting things. So that's kind of just the, the base motivation for checkers is I just want to do cool things. <laughs> so that's why Val has such a hard time convincing him to do do the boring do stuff. Literally yeah, exactly. anything. Yeah, and literally right. anything that he doesn't want to do because he's like, I don't want to do that. So if, a very different departure, I think, from like some of the other characters that I played, which is a little bit more like they have a family and they care about the world and all that stuff. Checkers are just like, I just want to do the things that sound fun. And that's the whole reason. Yes. Yeah. Jonathan is notoriously, or at least last campaign, and from what I can tell, is very, very much a, a DM's friend in that he's always very like, yes, I... I don't need any other plot hook <laughs> other than to do the right thing. Is this the right thing? Somebody's My in trouble. My character wants We're to there. do that. But conversely is also why I have a great deal of faith in Jonathan to make, to continue to make choices that are fun and interesting as opposed to like defiantly oppositional and right. like, I'm going to ruin everyone's fun <laughs> because <laughs> I hate everyone right. in and out of character. So yeah, I'm really excited to see how, how you how you play that. Right. It's a really interesting kind of balance, I guess, in the... Typically when you hear about someone who's playing like the, you know, oh, I do things that the party doesn't yeah. want me to, to do kind of character, it's always a like, oh, I messed with their stuff. Or like, oh, you know, I, you know, tell the king that he looks like an idiot. Which checkers would tell the king that he looks like an idiot, but you know... That's a separate Not like thing. in a stupid way, but just like this is something he feels deep. Or, right. it's like or I, I, I believe, I believe you as a player would give uh, our us as right. players and and our characters the chance to head that off. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, it would be like very. You know, Checkers is about his open his mouth, and in this situation, he's going to say something stupid. Yeah. What do you want to do? Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Presenting so, interesting choices for everyone, and thereby, if we don't do anything, thereby making whatever comes out of Checkers' mouth right. our fault. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Okay. Exactly. So gotcha. like, I'm trying to like play that line between I'm just going to do dumb things too but in a way that the party might find entertaining as opposed to just like being oppositional gotcha good good um, actually yep. let me also <laughs> talk about the whole checkers mechanically piece unless you were going to go oh there. no no okay, go, go okay ahead, cool go ahead. because Kaskrin is also kind of you know we talked about Kaskrin he's weird checkers is also <laughs> kind of weird because <laughs> <laughs> when I originally came up with checkers the only thing that I wanted to do was like have a pet and like have some kind of mount or have like you know some kind of thing but i didn't want to play beastmaster druid because by the time when i first originally master ranger you mean beastmaster ranger because when i originally came up with checkers the only beastmaster ranger was like the weird revised versions or like the player handbook versions and those just kind of suck <laughs> so 
I found as you say to two players who are playing straight out of the player's yeah. handbook, <laughs> yeah. specifically the Beastmaster well, yeah, Rangers. However, neither of us are playing the Beastmaster, Beastmaster. Yeah, right. and yeah. and at the same token, you guys are also playing subclasses from not core releases. I think am I remembering that no. correct? Oh no, no. Open, Open Palm no. was original. And Arcana Domain's yeah. also core. Yeah. Really? Yeah, but like Beastmaster is aggressively bad. But I also just didn't want to play a ranger because I like spells. So I badgered Nathan into letting me play a druid with originally it was more of this custom subclass from this homebrew that I found, which I can't also remember the name of at this particular juncture. Yeah, we'll make sure it gets linked out and yeah, credited. It will get linked out. I have all this information down there somewhere. But I found a druid homebrew that traded out wild shape for the ability to have a pet, like an actual scalable pet. Mm-hmm. And part of that was also I don't like wild shape as a concept. It was just like, I don't like to be someone who transforms into other things. I just want to be my character and have that be it. So at the end of the day, it took me a really long time, but I eventually came down to Druid with a pet, and then we made that work. Yep. Nice. Nice. Just real quick, he just reminded me of Jamie Tart of... Are you going to be a lion or a panda? I'm going to be me, coach. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't know if you realize how psychologically healthy that actually is. Nice. So we had heard that Checkers and Cass have a, a kind of a history together. It was implied during Cass's description of Checkers mm-hmm. that you were a rogue of some kind, but you have actually chosen a level of, of druid and a level of fighter. Right. So right. what drew you to those two instead of the rogue? At least for your fighter class. We could be here all... <laughs> no, no. So fighter was honestly a mechanical choice. It eventually kind of became a lightly world-related choice, but like like my brother, I also enjoy min-maxing and making characters and doing cool things. So fighter was there because I originally, when back when we had first planned this out, the build was going to be crossbow expert sharpshooter. And in order to do that, I had to have fighters so I could actually use the crossbow and all that fun stuff. Ah. And then it, that became irrelevant very quickly, but the other part of it is also like proficiency with martial weapons, having a shield, eventually fighter level two for second wind, constitution saving throws at level one. Like fighter is pretty much just a mechanical choice and I don't really lose anything for it. But I think at this point, eventually, depending on how things go, it will become like fighter five, druid five. So it's not just going to be a level one dip forever, I think. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Along those lines, what was it important for checkers to be, to be really good at? Yeah. So there's two things, uh, pet, the, the, you know, mango is, a big one. And whenever I play pet classes, a lot of the times it always ends up being the pet is the focus of the character and the actual character is just like background information. So I really wanted that to not be the case here and I'm hoping that it won't be. But Mango the frog sort of beast and checkers are more or less a pair or equal as opposed to like Mango doing all of the cool things and checkers just sort of standing back and casting spells. So that was important to me to like have a have a pet, but not have it be the main focus. And the second part, I think, was just having the ability to eventually like do mounted combat sort of stuff. 
because for our previous campaign i had played a bard who eventually picked up fine steed and like being able to mount a flying creature and just like fly around and like have all this movement and all these options was like the coolest thing ever to me like i really enjoyed just when the the mount would come over and my character would like hop on and they would run off into the sunset or like you know we would be able to like do like a flyby attack or things like that there was just like all kinds of cool tactical options you can do in combat when you control two characters that can become mounted so that was one thing i really wanted to do which is why checkers is small and mango is medium because that enables that option nice so what was why would checkers want to join the golden tree so that's a great question. <laughs> and Every, the question everyone's yeah, been asking. Right. Yeah. Canonically, it's because he got kind of reverse psychology into it. And this is kind of where Checkers and Kaskarin's background comes in because Kaskarin had become was invited to join the Golden Tree because of his background. Correct. Um, previously, the way I'm, I, I think of it is like Checkers came across Arlen Brushbarrel, the sort of person who's putting the Golden Tree back together either the day before or something like that previously. And he had received an offer from Arlen to join the Golden Tree. And Checker said, no, I don't want to do that. That sounds like work. And then he went over to Kaskrin, you know, at some point later in the future. And Kaskrin said, hey, I'm leaving Lotros. I'm going to join the Golden Tree. I'm going to go be an adventurer. And Checkers got kind of into this, not argument, just, but just this discussion where I think Kaskrin kind of said, you know, what what my cast what my cast? Yeah, I think Kaskrin said this is going to be too much of an adventure for you, Checkers. Like this is this is way out of your wheelhouse. You can't handle this, you know, this <laughs> excitement, this responsibility. Like you could never hack it in the Golden Tree Guild. Right, exactly. So Kaskrin reverse psychology Checkers into doing it, and Checkers is like, well, I'm going to join the Golden Tree. I'm going to be the best adventurer there ever has ever there has ever been. And I'm going to show you, Kaskrin, exactly what I can do. And that is the only reason why Checkers is here in the Golden Tree, is to prove Kaskrin wrong and be the best adventurer. Yeah, I was going to ask, Does so So where does the line for Checkers between spite, yeah. uh, which is fuels a lot of what right. Checkers does, uh-huh. naturally, uh-huh. and his own desire for living life to the fullest and experiencing as much as he can and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. is there any tinge of wanting to be to gain renown as part of this or is it just very self-focused and very like i'm going to be by my own definitions the best adventurer i can possibly be or like where in the spectrum of those is he so that's kind of an interesting question and i'm leaving it open-ended for right now Mm -hmm. for checkers his motivation is to be the best adventurer but he doesn't actually know what that means yet yeah so if in the grand scheme of things, being the best adventurer means being the most popular or the most well, well-known, he'd be like, yeah, I'll make my name out. Yeah, I'll put my name out there. But for right now, he's not really thinking about it. He's just thinking about it in terms of I'm going to be the best, whatever that means. I'm going to do it. So he'll so figure it out. His first goal is to out Kaskarin Kaskarin. Yes, exactly. And then anything else that happens after that is basically just gravy. Yeah, he'll figure it out as he goes. Like that's that's pretty much how he works. <laughs> Was there any particular inspiration for creating Checkers, or did you just kind of want to go weird? <laughs> uh, I pretty much just kind of wanted to go weird. Most of Checkers is just like me trying to think about what would be the dumbest thing for me to do right now, <laughs> and then flavoring it in a not dumb way, but mostly doing that. The only thing I would say is Mango is like 90% inspired by my dog, Bonnie. 
Uh, <laughs> yes. yeah. So anytime you see uh, Mango do something, Perfect. it's it's most likely something that my dog has done. Oh my god, is that why Mango is such good at grappling? Yes. Bonnie never lets go. <laughs> yes. Related. Yes. That, that does explain the eyeball Perfect. licking. Yes, it does. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So sometimes you may be like, you know, Mango goes over and sits on your feet, or Mango leans up against you. I'm like, yes, that's what Bonnie would do in this situation. <laughs> Everyone must must know that Bonnie has jaws of steel. And we'll play with a toy by just chomping it and then laying down. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you cannot move her. I right. will outlast you. Right. So that's that's pretty much where my inspiration for that comes from. Okay. And I, I think we touched a little bit on, uh, well, we touched on where Checkers lived yeah. previously, but where is he actually from? Sure. Absolutely. So this goes If, in- if uh, it's knowledge that everyone would know. Or if oh, you would have also said true. Yes, feel free to say uh, he is from secret area, yeah. from, uh, from away, and, yeah. and and would what would his answer be if one of the adventuring party asked him? You know, know that Val would have asked Checkers, yeah. Yeah. but Val is and also Cass would have, I'm sure too. Val's respectful if you did not want to share. Right. So this is where I kind of think it's interesting because there's a part of history that Checkers knows about his guild, and there's a part of history that I think the rest of the world knows about his guild, and they're different. Because about his guild? About his about his clan. So Checkers lived in Lotros for about six-ish months while he was learning how to steal things, how to speak common, that kind of stuff. And he grew up with... He essentially like grew up with the orphans here in Lotros. But where he's actually from is a group of islands pretty far to the east from the main continent. I'm calling them the Isles of Kamale. It's essentially just fantasy Hawaii, but like up a couple notches where all the volcanoes are active and like it's super hot and all the monsters are crazy. But he is from a clan of Grung there called the Icebreakers. And today they're called the Icebreakers, but in previous history they were called something else. And the Icebreakers were a clan that used to be much bigger. And Checkers wouldn't know this, but these days they're just kind of like maybe a hundred strong and they stay pretty much within those islands. And they don't really go anywhere. They're just very insular. Um, Part of the reason why Checkers left is because when he was born, he was born with uh, additional sort of a a, a strong connection to nature, which explains his druid powers and why he has Mango as sort of a very close pet friend. Um, Partner. Partner. (laughs) Yes, partner. He was expected to grow up and lead the, the the icebreakers eventually, but that required a lot of sort of formal training, a lot of learning, a lot of just ceremony and traditions. And Checkers is like, I'm going to live for 20 years tops. Why am I spending all my time doing this? So he left the clan, swam across the ocean and came over to the main continent where we are at today. Um, kind of just to continue back in history, the clan that he was at was originally known as the Wave Crashers, and they assisted the Pentarchy with some of their sort of shenanigans. And back then, the, the Wave Crashers were eventually lightly betrayed by the people of the Pentarchy, and that caused them to sort of fold in on themselves and collapse into the state that they are now. So some people like Valeska, who are familiar with history and the Pentarchy, might know about the Wave Crashers because back then they were actually a fairly big deal. They were sort of the main... like the strongest naval force in that part of the world and like big on shipping, big on like transportation, all that kind of stuff. So when they were sort of betrayed by the Pentarchy, 
they vanished essentially and a lot of that knowledge was lost because the grung of the icebreakers only live for 20 30 years and unless you're constantly doing something and constantly learning an entire generation can just forget things without you know really ever having the opportunity to, to pick it back up so that's just kind of history that checkers would never know but might ever might come up at some point that's cool if val knows this she assumes checkers would yeah and if checkers hasn't told anybody she just is probably assuming like he doesn't want to bring it up like i don't right. know why yeah. but like right. you don't want to you don't want to talk about like maybe your parents worked for the pentarchy years she's probably assuming that and yeah. she would never assume that checkers just might not know that yeah your so, great 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 grandpa yeah that it's a like, secret as opposed to like but i don't know yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm imagining grung physiology as like new families or new generations are born every single year and it's been maybe a couple decades since the wave crashers collapsed and the icebreakers yeah, were formed if not longer this is kind of the equivalent of like checkers not knowing something from like the 1600s in modern in human time because he's only a year and a half old and his species matures in in a year so he's thinking about his like great 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 grandfathers at that point and what they did which is why he doesn't really know about it because yeah. no one ever taught him so. nice just one more kind of main question yeah. and then and then we can open it up to anybody else <laughs> <laughs> are there any circumstances where checkers would decide to to leave the party and go home and go home he would mm. never go home <laughs> no yeah he has no reason to ever return back would he ever decide to leave the party that's kind of where i'm still trying to figure that out because as part of his goal to be the greatest adventurer whatever that means if he decides that being with this party or being at the golden tree can't help him fulfill that or if he can be a quote unquote better adventurer somewhere else he might take that option so at at this point yeah. uh, where we are in the story that being a great adventurer is more important than the the, the your companions i kind of want to say yes like okay. his companions are the vehicle with yeah. which to become a great adventurer so this is just what he's working with right now but and this is very much like beginning checkers like he has oh absolutely yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah this is yeah. this is this is we have just started off we've only had a handful right. of games so far yeah right this is this is checkers mindset right uh, but as I'm, of now i'm thinking right now he's not particularly attached to like the golden tree as a guild sure. he, he doesn't really believe in it's like um you know tenants he'll if he wants to if following the tenants really well means he'll be the best adventurer then he will do that but he hasn't decided that yet okay so if another adventuring guild were to come along and prove that they were better than the golden tree that might be an interesting decision point for checkers even early on in this campaign checkers betrays the guild and the party you heard it here Spoiler first alert. right yeah <laughs> yeah right i mean this yeah. is coming out after episode one and two Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> yep you got it so that's that's, good, that's good. where i'm at well thank you very much yeah well, thank okay, you, Okay, but Steve. what about the stack of frogs? Oh, yeah. yes. stack of frogs. Yes, yeah, so mango. So checkers is three frogs. Uh, there's mango, the medium <laughs> checkers frog. Checkers is three, three frogs. frogs. Right. <laughs> himself. The, the mango, the medium-sized frog. Checkers, the small-sized frog. Who rides player on, character. The player character who rides on top of mango. And then Junior, which is his find familiar frog. One of the spells right. yep, that he gets. Yep, that just sort of sits in the hat and peeps out and looks at things. And, and is a frog. And is also a frog. So it's just three frogs all stacked up that's that's where the stack of frogs comes from <laughs> the, the three frog tree frog yeah pretty much 
I also really, really wanted to be like, they're all frogs because they all have 10 foot tall high jumps. So I wanted to just be like mango high jumps <laughs> and checkers high jumps and then junior high jumps. And we just see junior on top of a 30 foot building in like six seconds. Yeah, right. That's just immediately ascended. Right. Just like, hang on, let me go get a view from up there. Junior leaps up 30 feet and then uh, use the familiar vision to just see what's going on up there. Because I got, Perfect. I'm I'm dumb like that. that that's <laughs> the kind of stuff that I like. <laughs> nice. Man, what a wonderful, that's the kind of stuff I like. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I want in my D&D game. To just be real dumb things. Yeah, I just, I, I just want a uh, television show or movie kind of pan back. And we just see like this, this dense foliage. Uh-huh. And then you just see, boing. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like the, the fro- a frog just kind of appears at the top. Right. And it's like hovers in the air for like a second, then like falls back down. Yep. Right. Mm, yeah. uh, we haven't discussed the uh, the falling rules for if you're jumping so far. So like if Junior jumps up to 30 feet and then falls 30 feet, presumably he's dead. That's a risk you're going to have <laughs> yeah. to take. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Right. That was uh, I believe that was something I had seen on a video about uh, about rules as written uh-huh. was that if you are playing a race that can jump 10 feet you take falling damage from right. dropping 10 feet. Right, exactly. And so you could kill yourself by jumping <laughs> too high. But if Mango lands and Trekkers lands and, and they jump up in sync, right. does, does Junior only take 10 feet of falling damage as they catch him? Well, what's the, the air resistance yeah. of each of these frogs? I think that's where it gets... Wait, yeah, I'll let you know that Junior only has one HP. So regardless <laughs> of how far so he falls. Okay, matter. so the first time Junior falls to his death and dies. <laughs> oh no. Valesco will prototype frog a teeny tiny frog parachute. <laughs> done and done. I mean, we can retroactively say that that's happened once already. I don't I don't know how I, I don't know how careful Checkers yeah. is. With- I, I'd, I'd like to amend my my previous statement. I want to see the pan out of the forest and I want to see the little frog <laughs> pop up and then <laughs> and then <laughs> slowly <laughs> float down. I'm imagining it like a Goomba. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's it's all canon when you just yeah. say it, <laughs> right? Okay, frog parachutes are a thing. Yes, Bring, uh-huh. work it in. The, the only the <laughs> only thing I think would that would be left would be loading. Loading them into a crossbow, yeah. shooting them <laughs> with, oh, with no. I can just see like the, go- the, the goggles, goggles. Yeah. the goggles come down. Let me off. Let me go. All right, last and definitely least lore. <laughs> so I figured that uh, a a lot of people like myself are just lore and world building junkies uh, who like to know all the weird fiddly bits of the world that we're going to be adventuring in, but also because we tried really hard to keep our first few episodes very in media res and very enmeshed in the world without trying too hard to stop and explain a bunch of fiddly things that may or may not have much to do with the plot that we would really benefit from some instances of just explaining a few things. Things that are prevalent, that characters would know, that people in the world would know, but not might not necessarily come up in the everyday conversations, but might be important to know, just to know kind of the place that we're adventuring in. So, speaking of the world that we're adventuring in, it is a totally homebrew one that I and really we created together specifically for our podcast. We kicked around a lot of ideas uh, in the months between kind of ending our last campaign and starting this one, and I got stumped and overwhelmed, and we uh, we actually ended up playing the world-building game Microscope to build our world and our timeline, which is really highly recommended. 
and then I took what we came up with and just kind of ran with it from there. And we, I took that, I slapped in some ideas that I thought were neat. I took all the great world building ideas from the players as they were coming up with their characters or just coming up with other neat things. And that is the Rixia that you see before you today. And so in the fiction of the world, Rixia was created by 12 gods, one for each of the main cleric domains, essentially. These gods also created all the humanoid or player character races of the world and gave them languages and even lived on Rixia with these mortals for a time. Therefore, all the ancestries and races in our settings, uh, even though they are as diverse as you would see here on Earth, are very much seen as equals and can more or less be found intermingling throughout the world with a couple of uh, kind of specific exceptions. They all, the gods also created the great dragons, giants, and other intelligent creatures that, that go a bit beyond the term air quotes mortal uh, that are kind of, again, the player races. Each god is kind of an amorphous representation of each of these domains. They go by a variety of names and uh, different appearances and have a bunch of different legends around them, depending on the culture and civilization all around the globe. And for centuries, heroes and villains uh, who attained a certain level of fame and accomplishment were identified as saints under these gods, which is, you know, kind of just the Western colloquialism uh, that I use in the shorthand. But, you know, in, in the world and in your own kind of headcanons and stuff, definitely insert your own versions of that, whether it's, you know, Rishis or Wallis or, or what have you. Whatever terminology is kind of cool and interesting, all canon, all very real. Uh, and, uh, and each of these represented different aspects of that domain. Someone who follows, say, the god of knowledge could also revere a couple of saints who are like, well, specifically, I like the part of knowledge where I'm writing books or reading or accumulating knowledge. And so here's a couple of saints who represent that in the world uh, or someone who is a war domain cleric. And it's like, well, I specifically like the part of war where it's about chivalrous combat and about, you know, kind of doing things the right way and treating your opponents with respect and, and that sort of thing is a totally valid follower of the kind of big picture war, war god who would also have these kind of saints representing the particular aspects of the god that that they're revering. It's kind of a nice way to let players and even fans or whoever really focus in on the parts of the domain that they are most interested in exploring in their character and also a great way just to diversify the stories that can be told in it. And I'm excited to kind of see the ways that we, uh, you know, kind of integrate that and uh, and keep working those sorts of things in. So it also would not be a fantasy setting if we didn't talk about the magic. Since the gods left the world, Rixia has really had a lot of ages divided by how prevalent magic is at that point in time. Uh, high magic to medium magic to low magic to medium magic to high magic and, you know, so on and, and so forth. But as mortal control of magic goes higher, uh, so does, of course, its misuse, and so and um, so does the strange appearance and power of creatures known as monsters. These are creatures who are often aggressively murderous, manipulative, or you know, just kind of otherwise bad news, uh, particularly towards all mortal races. Right now, the campaign is taking place in a kind of medium magical period, but 
in a very confusing way to any scholar of history or magic, the monsters seem to be at a higher magical level than the level of magic kind of accessible to mortals right now. So you guys are kind of not fighting fire with fire, uh, so to speak. So it's extra dangerous. Um, and no one really knows why that's the case. And that's the first recorded time in history that kind of the different levels are out of sync. And no one's exactly sure why. Our campaign is starting out in the foothills of the Emerald Range uh, in the city of Agmar. We have maps of that on social media and on our website. This part of the world was under the control of the Pentarchy, a tyrannical group of sorcerers uh, who ruled for several hundred years uh, on top of their own kind of magical prowess and dominance and armies and, and intelligence and capabilities. They also controlled a number of things called the Objects of Focus which are extremely powerful magical items uh, created during a few of the higher magical periods of the world. It really allowed them to exert uh, even more control over a huge area of the of the world and pretty much reign more or less unchallenged uh, until, well, until their reign was challenged uh, and really ended uh, when one of the two sons of this world fell out of the sky and destroyed their capital city, which uh, is actually on the map uh, and kind of near-ish to where the adventurers are going to be playing, uh, presumably killing the Pentarchy, their lieutenants, all that kind of thing, and unleashing these giant titans that are called Ultra Giants. Uh, I'm not going to go too in-depth about them. Uh, I'm sure they'll come up a little bit uh, during the campaign, or we'll talk about it some other time. But essentially, these huge titans raged around the world for years, destroying cities, killing untold numbers of mortals, and really just totally reshaping the scope of the world until they kind of mysteriously disappeared. Now the world is re-emerging and retaking cities and swaths of land, uh, the few that still stand, that is. And so it is still very much, uh, for those of you, uh, you know, um, for those of you who are fluent in kind of the D&D terminology, this is definitely a points of light setting where there are areas uh, that are towns or cities that are well defended and pretty well guarded that you can pretty much always feel safe in relatively. There will still be adventures in cities, but really as soon as you get out of the areas around cities, you are in the wilds. You are in trouble. <laughs> it is very, very dangerous. And tra overland travel is done only by the foolish, the powerful, or the many. And that's really about it. And none of those are guarantees of success. Finally, I uh, wanted to touch briefly on adventuring guilds, which in uh, we talked about a little bit. But in this world is uh, this old, ancient, revered tradition. They date back centuries, millennia even for some of them, and they all have an interesting naming convention where they were all originally kind of rooted in this ancient mother language of, of power that the gods handed down to mortals when they were living with them. These words and these names had this mystical power to them. There were all sorts of legends about the amount of power that this conveyed, the stature of these sort of individuals who would be adventuring under these names but through the ages the access to that language was lost and the power kind of went with it of these names but they were so uh, so well known and so powerful and so meaningful to so many people that even as the names changed and the different languages changed 
and you know the names kind of turned to nonsense uh they still carried a lot of weight. And so a lot of people have uh, taken these really long names. Again, these are like 12 word names that have somehow been mistranslated and, you know, again, entered into Google and then re-entered into Google Translate and then re-entered into Google Translate. And they've taken these clunky long names and shortened them into kind of these more, uh, you know, more fun ones like the Golden Tree. Um, and that is the adventuring party that everyone is in for this campaign. We will talk more about all the various lore stuff. I'm sure we'll have follow-up episodes, uh, maybe even probably just cover a lot of it during the course of normal episodes as these sorts of things come up. But we figured, hey, big lore dump up front. Hopefully people find it interesting and it'll kind of help set the stage and set the the feel for the world that we're trying to create together. Yay. <laughs> there will be a quiz on this, of course. Right. <laughs> I hope you all are as excited as we are to see these characters run around the world of Rixia in our new campaign. If you like what we're doing, let us know on social media or leave us a review on your podcast listening service of choice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>